I'm excited for today's passage. Um, we're going to be reading out of Luke 17, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read until 19. Um, for the last few weeks, I've been presenting to you four questions that we want to answer as we approach uh, God's word. The first is, who is God? Uh, we want to discern from the word of God, what does, what does this passage reveal to us about the identity of God? Because the Bible primarily is a book that reveals God to us, um, his nature, his identity, the way he acts in the world. Um, very often, when we get a revelation of who God is, we grow in our understanding of who we are. So the second question we ask is, who am I in light of who God is? Because we only properly understand our identity in light of God's identity. He's the creator, we're the created, and when we understand how we relate to him, uh, we get something um, deeper understanding about who we are. And then we ask two questions of application. What is God saying to me? And secondly, what am I going to do about it? Because the word of God really becomes powerful in our lives as the Holy Spirit applies it to us and we begin to move and act in accordance with the word of God. That's how we grow. That's how spiritual breakthrough happens is we follow through on not just hearing the word but doing it together. So we're going to be looking at these four questions today. Just a reminder, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has his face set toward Jerusalem. He is on his way to his death. And this is not lost on him. He knows exactly what's happening. He's already predicted it to the disciples. And at this point, he is in a region uh, where Samaria and Galilee border each other. And there's a story of healing in this passage. Um, stories of healing happen all the way throughout the Gospels. We've, over the last few years, explored a lot of those stories together. Hey, by my count, by the way, in this chronological series through the Gospels, I believe this is like my 54th sermon in this series. Isn't that crazy? And I've only preached about half the series. There's been about nine or so other people that have uh, preached through the series as well. So it's been a great journey together. It is coming to a close um, quickly here. But he is on his way toward the cross. This is the latter half of his ministry. So just we remember the context of that. Um, often, it's our custom to stand in honor of God's word, so I'd ask you to stand to your feet. Uh, the passage of scripture will be on the screen behind me, and we'll begin in verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master. Have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Lord, I do feel inadequate to the task this morning. How could I ever put into adequate words how good you've been to us? And Lord, how could I ever say the right thing to inspire the praise that you deserve? So Lord, I'm just asking that your spirit would do something powerful this morning that I can't do on my own. 
that you would move our very spirits to give you praise and worship, that you would move us, Lord God, to give you the praise that you are worthy of, and God, that we would glorify you in this place because you do deserve it. Lord, we just tell you this morning, just even as we approach the word, that you do deserve our praise. You deserve our praise and the praise of all of creation for what you've done for us. And we are so grateful for all that you've accomplished in our lives. And we thank you, Jesus. We thank you. Lord, come be with us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Can we just put our hands together for the goodness of God? Amen. You can take your seats. All right. Let me give you some... Let's just walk through this passage so we understand some of what's happening here. Leprosy in the scriptures it really is a category for a number of skin diseases, of visible skin diseases. And the Old Testament law commanded that anyone who fell into that category should be separated from the people. Now, on one hand, it's an ingenious move because it has something to do with preventing the spread of disease, right? prevents the spread of disease in the community of people. And yet, for the one who has leprosy, that Old Testament law meant that you were excluded from family, social, and religious life until it cleared up. You can imagine that you would be so hopeful um, that it would clear up because as long as your skin was in that condition, it would mean you were not able to engage your normal life, not even with your family. As Jesus is traveling on this road, he runs into not one person, but 10 people who have some kind of skin condition. They're lepers, and they do what the Old Testament law commanded them to do. They're calling out and saying that that is what they are. It was commanded in the law that they should cry out and warn people that they are lepers. But I don't know what these people knew about Jesus, but they knew at least that he was merciful and that he had power to heal. Whether they had seen it with their own eyes or that had just reached them because of Jesus' reputation, they knew at least that much. And so they cry out to a master, have pity on us. Apparently, not only do they believe that Jesus can do something about this, that he has power to heal, but they believe that his disposition is mercy. Jesus actually doesn't heal them on the spot. Instead, he gives them a command. Sometimes Jesus heals this way in the gospel accounts, not all of the time. But he does here, he provokes faith by giving them an action step, right? So he tells them, go to the priests. This was also the command in the law that after receiving healing of a skin condition, before you could experience re-entry into family and social and religious life, a priest needed to verify that you had, in fact, been cleansed. So Jesus tells these men to act like the healing has already happened, and to go and to show themselves to the priests. And as it turns out, on their way, as they're going on their way uh, to show themselves to the priests on the road, I can't imagine the joy that overcame them because they look down at their skin and they realize that they have been completely healed. Now, nine of these individuals go on to do what Jesus had told them to do. They go on to show themselves to the priests. I imagine there was an eagerness, right? Um, to get the process underway so that they could get back to their normal lives, so that they could experience their families, so they could be part of their communities again, so that they could participate fully in religious life. But we're told that there's one individual 
And scripture gives us an important detail about him, that he himself was a Samaritan. Apparently the others weren't, but this individual was a Samaritan. We'll say more about that in a second. And he's the one that comes back to Jesus. And when he does, when he returns to Jesus, he returns with exuberant praise. He comes with a loud voice, the scriptures say. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. He is demonstratively showing his thanksgiving and his praise to the Lord. Now, there's no doubt that this whole account, in a sense, and I think it's one reason Luke records it for us, that this whole account, in a sense, is prophetic of what's going to happen to Jesus in the upcoming um, season of his ministry. Because some of the very people who you would expect to offer him praise and worship are going to be the ones who don't, who pass him by. And it's going to be very, very many times the people who you would not expect who are going to recognize who he truly is. And so this story, in a sense, is prophetic of what's about to happen to Jesus. He's going to be rejected by his own, but along the way, people who are, who are outside of the Jewish faith, outside of uh, the Jewish experience, are going to be the ones who recognize that he is who he says he is. Nonetheless, I think there's also something in this passage about what it means to be a worshiper about what it means to offer our thanksgiving fully to the Lord. Jesus heals many times in the Gospels, but the thrust of this story is not his healing act, but instead the response of this one man. So that's what I want to dig in with you this morning as we consider. But first of all, let's ask the question, who is God? I'm going to answer this very simply this morning by just saying that God is Savior in this passage. I want to explain to you what I mean. This is one healing of many that Jesus performs. And all throughout this series, we've been laying before you what we've called a theology of the kingdom so that we can understand these healings and deliverances and Jesus' teachings in the context of what is happening in Jesus' ministry. So if we can for a second, I want us to still consider this individual healing, but I want us to pull back kind of have a bird's eye view and remember the context of what it is that's happening in Jesus's healing acts. And we've said this over and over again in the last few years. It was the claim of John the Baptist and of Jesus himself that in the ministry of Jesus Christ when he appeared, that it was more than just him performing some miracles and doing some things and teaching some wise stuff. An act was happening, a divine uh, act was happening in which the kingdom of God was breaking into the human experience. This is Jesus' bold claim at the beginning of Mark, right? Repent and believe because the kingdom is at hand. Jesus was saying that what was happening in his ministry is the very rule of God, which is what his kingdom is. The very rule of God was breaking onto the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And wherever God rules whether it's in a person or in a community or in a church, wherever God rules, what is wrong in the world is being made right according to its original intention, right, and purpose before the fall. He is reversing all that sin and Satan has accomplished because of human rebellion, right? So when Jesus heals the sick, He's doing more than just being compassionate to the individual that is in front of him, even though he is compassion to the sick person that is in front of him. But what he's doing is he's establishing the rule of God 
in that person's body. Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, there's no sickness, right? So when Jesus establishes his rule in that person's body in front of him, he eradicates their illness, right? When a demonized person comes into the presence of Jesus and Jesus by his power evicts that spirit that is oppressing them, he is reversing the illegal rule of the devil that took place because of human sinfulness. When he sends spirits running, he is establishing his rule over and against the illegal rule of the enemy. You see what's happening? When Jesus teaches, so much of what he teaches in the parables, what he's teaching us to recognize and understand is what the rule of God looks like. He's teaching us the kingdom, right? He shows us when God is ruling, this is what human relationships look like. The last are first, and the first are last. Those who are downtrodden get lifted up. The poor get honored, so on and so forth, because that's what it looks like when God is ruling and reigning. And when Jesus boldly claims, as he did in his ministry, that he has the authority and the power to forgive sin, he is saying that the rule of God has come, and that rule is a rule of forgiveness for all who will receive the grace that God is offering. And of course, all of what I'm saying is not displayed ultimately in these individual acts of miracles and deliverances and teachings and statements of Jesus. If you really want to see where all of this comes to a head, it's at the cross. Are you tracking with me? It all comes to a head at the cross. It's there that we see all of this the clearest. It's at the cross that Jesus allows his own body to be broken so that our bodies can forever be put back together, right? It is by his stripes that we are healed, right? It's at the cross that Jesus ultimately wins this battle against the devil. Scripture says he makes a spectacle of ruling powers and authorities. He puts the enemy to shame. It looked like the enemy was getting him, but in fact, he was defeating the enemy at the cross. It, it's at the cross that we see that Jesus makes himself poor. He goes to the lowest place possible, experiences in that place, even the rejection of his own father, so that we would never have to be rejected, so that we could forever be accepted for all of eternity. And it is on the cross that, we, that he takes on to himself the punishment and the sin of the whole human race so that we can forever be forgiven and free. Amen? Can we just put our hands together and let's thank him for his work. Let's praise him today. Amen. So, who am I? Well, I'm going to say that if God is Savior, and by the way, everything that I just said, one way to say that is that God is Savior. To say that he is Savior means that he reverses everything that is wrong in the world. Do you understand the magnitude of that? To say that he is Savior is to say that at the cross, everything that is wrong in the world was dealt with by the love of God. Isn't that incredible? Dealt with by the love of God. And if that is who God is, then it means that I am a worshiper. See, what this man has experienced in this passage is a taste of Jesus as Savior. It's not even the full picture. 
But he gets a taste of it in the healing of his body. And what this turns him into necessarily is a worshiper. You see, I'm a worshiper. My identity is a worshiper. I want you to hear what I'm saying this morning. I'm not saying that worship is something that we do. I'm not saying that it's something, you know, my, the thrust of my sermon tomorrow, today, tomorrow, I guess it's going to be a long sermon, folks. The thrust of my sermon is not just that we should do more worship, even though that is part of it. What I'm saying is that worship, because God is Savior, worship is not just something that I do. Worship, a worshiper is what I have become in response to his grace. Let me explain to you what I mean by this. First of all, I'm a worshiper because I am a recipient of all of the goodness of God, of all of his goodness. If, if you know me, you know that one of my favorite passages is Romans 8.32. I meant to put it on the screen. I forgot. But it says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You want to know the intention of God towards your life. If you want to know how God, how committed God is to blessing you, then just look at the cross. Because friends, there he gave what was most important to him. There he didn't give just a healing. He didn't give just an act of deliverance. I mean, he gave his own son to you. And if you ever have questioned if God loves you, well, then that is where you look. Because there is where he proved it finally. You look at the cross. You see him suffering, bleeding there for you so that you could have all of the riches of heaven. And Paul's argument in Romans 8 is, look, if the Father gave you Jesus, you better bet you're going to get everything else too. You're going to get everything else that God has to give. And it's not going to be temporary or fleeting. You're going to get it for all eternity. See, John says it this way at the beginning of his gospel, that we have received grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Grace just keeps flowing out of the heart of the Father to us. God has directed his good will to me for all of eternity. That's what the cross means. I didn't deserve any of it. But all of the goodwill of heaven has been directed toward me. Isn't that amazing? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. I'm also a worshiper because at salvation, God brought my spirit back to life. And when he did, he turned my affections eternally to my creator. You see, scripture says that we were enemies of God. All of us. We're enemies of God. We were born enemies of God. But when I received the grace that was available to me because of the cross, and the Holy Spirit came and inhabited my life, he brought back to life what was dead in me, which was my spirit. My spirit was not turned toward God. It did not care about God. It was an enemy of God. But when the Holy Spirit came and brought my spirit back to life, my affections were turned toward him for all eternity. And this is also why I'm a worshiper, friend. You, you know how you can tell what your identity is in Scripture? You can tell what your identity is because it is what you will forever be. If it's not what you will forever be, it's just a temporary assignment. You see, I'm a pastor at Crestmont Alliance Church, but I will not be that for all eternity. Some of you are thinking, thank the Lord. 
I will not be that for all. <laughs> I will not be that for all eternity, right? Um, but I will be a worshiper for all eternity. See, if it's what you're going to be forever, then that's who God made you to be. The other stuff is good, but it's just assignment. It's temporary. By the way, those assignments, even though they're good and they come from God, they often take from us. The identity stuff is where we get filled up. The identity stuff is what gives to us. And it's why we will be that forever. This man in this passage is responding to the grace and mercy of Jesus. And friends, if you are in Christ, I'm telling you, you're going to spend all of eternity responding to the manifold grace of God. All of eternity is going to be spent as one big response to what Jesus did for us. So endless is his grace that our praise will be endless as well. We will never get tired of lifting him up and giving him praise. I feel like this is a morning for clapping. Can we just give him praise again? Amen. So my identity as a worshiper, it's not just what I do. It's who I am. Because God is Savior, I can't help but be a worshiper. This man realizes this. So what is God saying to me? I want to pull a couple things for you out of this passage that I see in this man's worship. First of all, if my identity is a worshiper, then both my pain and my blessings are meant to drive me back to Jesus in worship. I love that this passage came after the passage we looked at next week, last week. <laughs> I keep going into the future. It's a very kingdom way of talking, future-oriented. Um, last week, we were looking at the grief surrounding Lazarus's death and how Mary and Martha in particular, their pain drives them to Jesus. Their pain causes them to go out to him. And even if they have questions and stuff, they want to be near to Jesus. We often talk, don't we, about how our pain is either going to drive us into the presence of Jesus or our pain is going to cause us to drift away from him, right? Because the enemy is very interested in getting a hold of our pain, right? He's very interested in attaching a narrative to that. In this passage, we see something else. It is the pain of these men that initially draw them to Jesus, right? Master, have pity on us. It's a call of desperation, and it is their condition and the exclusion that surrounds their health condition that drives them to the presence of Jesus. But we see something else in this passage, that it is the intention of God, not only that our pain drives us to him, but that the blessings that he gives to us drive us back to him as well. And see, there's a choice to be made there too. Just like we can choose to believe a lie about our pain, or we can choose to believe God's truth about our pain, and that's going to have everything to do if we, respond, if we respond to our pain and worship. The same is true with our blessing. Listen, the worst thing to abuse is the mercy and grace of God. But it's so easy to do it. God blesses us. He gives us his salvation. He extends his goodwill to us. And for nine of these individuals, it's like, let's just get on to the next thing. Thanks, Jesus. See ya. We're on to the next thing, right? Because in our sinfulness, the very blessings of God that are meant to push us back to him can be the very things that push us away from him. From him. There's some good biblical examples of this. In the Old Testament, Solomon, right? 
If you're familiar with that story, a king greatly blessed, greatly favored by God. And yet in the end, those blessings did not draw him closer to God, but took him further away. It's the case for these nine individuals. You know what I'm learning? Is that when I allow not only my pain, but the blessings that God gives me to be the fuel that drives me back to him in worship, something happens. My capacity to carry blessing increases. See, God wants to bless. You don't have to question his disposition toward you, right? He wants to bless. I understand his timing is not our timing. Sometimes on this side of glory, we're left waiting for things that we'll experience in the fullness of the kingdom. I understand that. But you don't have to question his heart towards you. His heart towards you is to bless if you are in Christ. And yet our capacity to experience those blessings, our capacity to walk in those blessings grows as when we receive those blessings, we return worship to Jesus for them. You know, some of you know that 10 years ago, I was involved in starting uh, an organization in Aliquippa called Aliquippa Impact, a youth development organization that started out of the church here and is still running strong in the community. In those early years, friends, when we first started, we just never had enough money to be able to pull off the things that we thought God was calling us to. And yet, over and over and over again, God provided in miraculous ways. If there's an area where my faith has grown significantly in the last 10 years, it's in this, because I've just seen God do it. Friends, with a track record like that, how could I doubt you know, who God is or what he's doing? It's an amazing track record in providing for us. But I remember Steve Rossi, who's a pastor here at the church and has worked with us at Equip Impact. I remember Steve and I used to look at each other in those early years, and we would say, you know, God keeps things lean like this and painful, because it keeps us dependent on him, right? And we had the joy of experiencing how our pain could drive us to prayer. How our pain, God, where is this going to come from? There's kids who need reached and the situation is urgent. God, what are you going to do? We saw how the pain of that could actually draw us to him and not away from him. It was an amazing experience. Now, sometimes it still feels like that at Aliquip Impact, just to keep it real with you. And yet, God has done far more than we could ever imagine. We're reaching more kids than I ever thought would be possible. This thing has become something that I didn't, couldn't even dream of in the beginning, the, the resources that God has given us. And I remember Steve at one point telling Aliquip Impact's board of governors, I remember him telling him, in the early years, we used to think, that God was just interested in keeping things painful for us so that it would keep drawing us back to him. He said, but we're learning something now that the blessings of God take us back to him too. And we're experiencing more blessing. We're experiencing more resources. We're able to reach more kids. And yes, there's the potential for that, like these nine, to cause us to just run away and forget about the goodness of the Lord. But what if the blessings of God are the very things that take us back into his presence. Worship is how that happens. You know, this thing started to develop at Aliquippa Impact. You know, when God has answered our prayers, we return it back to him in worship. In those years, we began to pray and worship more than we ever had as a staff. And you know what starts to happen? Your response to your pain becomes worship. Your response to your blessing becomes worship. 
just your response to about anything that happens in your life begins to worship this God who loves you. And we know that he loves us because of the cross. I want to say the second thing to you, that if my identity is a worshiper, then the depth of my pain or my need only deepens my worship. The depth of my pain or my need only deepens my worship. I think there's a clue in this passage as to why this man was the one who returned. And it's that little piece of information. He was a Samaritan. You know, it's interesting. Some of you, you know, we've talked about this in the series already. You'll remember that there's deep divisions between the Samaritans and the Jews in the New Testament story. And the Samaritans are their neighbors to the north. And there's political division racial division, mostly religious division between these two groups of people. And Samaritans were excluded and looked down on again and again and again by the religious establishment in Jerusalem. See, I think there's a clue into this man's identity as a Samaritan as to why he worships so deeply and so freely. And here, here it is. When the other nine get healed, they get fully restored to inclusion. When this man gets healed he's still excluded because he was excluded before he had leprosy. Oddly enough, he actually found that he was able to join together with these other Jewish guys in his sickness. But when he's well, he's not going to be able to join back in with what's happening. He's doubly excluded. His pain, I would suggest, is deeper than the others. And something happens when you're in touch with your pain and when you're in touch with your need for grace. A kind of worship that you didn't know could come out of you is exactly what comes out of you because being in touch with our need, being in touch with our pain causes thanksgiving to rise out of us at a deeper level. For these other guys, you know, aside from the leprosy, things look pretty good in their life. But for this guy, something deeper is happening. Even without the leprosy, He's still an outsider. Even without the leprosy, pain is still there, and he is in touch with his need. He's in touch with, with his pain, and this draws him back to the Lord. You know, it's interesting, the world over, I've seen this with my own eyes, and I've heard accounts of it, but the world over, there's an interesting phenomenon that when whole groups of people have been oppressed or marginalized, and the gospel gets a hold in those groups of people, it is very often the case that you will see a depth of worship and praise come out of those folks that you might not see other places. When I was in India two years ago, my last night in India, I'll never forget, it was so hot, like painfully hot. And we're in this upstairs room. You know, the Indian Christians are poor, marginalized, discriminated against at every turn. Some of them are experiencing persecution or execution, I mean, terrible stuff happening. And we worshiped hard, late. As a matter of fact, I was wearing slacks. This is so gross. But I was wearing slacks, and I was wearing a polo shirt. And I remember feeling at the end like I just wanted to throw my clothes away because they, both of them soaked completely through because they just kept going after the presence of God. Now, what is that? Is it just emotionalism? Is it just a group of people that's less educated than we are? Or is it that in that group of people, because of their circumstance, they are in touch with their need and with their pain in a way that maybe some of us aren't? Do you know that there are Palestinian Christian churches? 
Um, I was at a prayer conference once connected with the Christian Missionary Alliance, and there was the Palestinian leader of an evangelical Bible college who was expressing to us in tears the pain he felt in his heart because many American Christians don't even know that these Palestinian Christians exist. They're doubly marginalized, marginalized in their own Muslim culture. And then very many American Christians overlook them because in a sincere effort to try to support Israel, um, we look over the needs of this group of people. He told us in tears, most American Christians don't even know we exist. They don't even know our suffering. One of my dear friends got to be with them for a prayer conference. He told me, he said, Joel, they worshiped until four in the morning in a room with no windows. He said, I've never seen anything like it. He said, people, see something, right? when you're in touch with your need, when you're in touch with your pain, something rises up in you that says the world may forget about me. People may overlook me. I might be excluded or left out, but the God of heaven has directed all of his goodwill toward me. I am eternally the recipient of everything that God has to give. Amen? Amen. In the United States, we could look at the example of the African-American church, marginalized at every turn, the rights taken away from them. I spoke at an AME church a couple years ago in our community, and I told them, your churches have been burned throughout American history. Your pastors executed and lynched, and still there hasn't been full recognition that you are a persecuted church, that your history is as a persecuted church. There's an uncomfortable thing because many of the people committing those atrocities against our African-American brothers and sisters in the United States were themselves, at least in name, Christians. It's an uncomfortable part of our history. But there is a depth of worship that formed generation after generation after generation. And you can look at it and say, well, it's just emotionalism, it's just excitement, or what if in the history of a people there is connection to need, there is connection to pain, and it causes this man to throw himself at the feet of Jesus, to cry out in a loud voice. I'm not suggesting, friends, that you have to be loud for your worship to be deep. That's not what I'm saying, and don't hear that in what I'm saying. But I am saying there is a depth of spontaneous worship that rises out of the one who knows they need grace. And guess what? You don't need to be marginalized to know that you need grace. You don't need to be poor to know that you need grace. What you need to do is just recognize your own fallenness, to recognize that without the cross, I have nothing. Without what Jesus has done, I have nothing. And yet, God has given it all to me freely at the cross. Get in touch with your own need. Bring that stuff to church, friends. Bring your need. Bring your pain to church because it will be some of the greatest fuel that you have to worship the Lord. See, many times we're out of touch with our need and it makes us apathetic worshipers. See, we're out of touch with our pain. We don't want to face it. Or the devil has attached a false narrative to our pain, so it makes us apathetic worshipers. And I've heard people talk about worshiping God like it's just a preference thing. You know, like, well, some people are into worshiping God. I'm into cheese curls. <laughs> Listen, God, God, is not, God is not one of many things that we just get to choose from. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the one who died 
went into the ground and came up alive again. He's the one with all power in his hand to heal the sick, to reverse the curse, to send the devil running, and to save us from our sins for all eternity. This is why in the book of Revelation, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Salvation and glory and honor and power and wisdom belong to our God forever. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm going to wrap up here. I think some of us, friends, need to worship in the pain. Maybe even because of it. You know, the first funeral I did was with an AME pastor. Wow. It was with an AME pastor in uh, Aliquippa. And it was a child who was dying. My first funeral. I felt so inadequate. And I was in Children's Hospital with him. And we were pulling life support. And the family had gathered around. And this AME pastor, he just took me under his wing and was just showing me what to do. He said, Joel, watch what I'm doing. We went into this room, and they began to pull life support. She died maybe within 15 minutes of life support being pulled, this little girl. And I remember what this pastor did. I'll never forget it. He just started to say, glory to the Lord. Glory to the Lord. Hallelujah to our God. See, it wasn't like this terrible thing is happening so we can't worship. It's like this terrible thing is happening so we better worship. We better get to the place where we're drawn to the presence of God. And the presence of God just flooded that room. I'll never forget it as we just began to worship around her as she passed. I think some of you need to worship in the battle. I have a close friend, um, mentor of ours in the College of Prayer, some of you are familiar with this story, but he got a phone call that his daughter had been diagnosed with cancer. The tumor was actually completely wrapped around her heart at the time that they discovered it had broken her sternum. That's how they discovered the cancer. And he got the phone call, and he said to us, he said, what do you do when you get a phone call like that? He said, I'm, I'm yelling, I'm crying. He said, my wife is on the floor weeping because we feel like we're going to lose our daughter. And he said, what do you do? years now. It's amazing. Or this, I think some of us need to worship in the blessing. And this is something else I learned from a friend once. One night when I was in India ministering two years ago, the spirit came. I'm not going to have time to tell the story. I've told it before. But what an odd night. I mean, I've never seen the spirit come in power like he did on a group of people. 500 people running to the altar, hungry for Jesus. And when we began to lay hands on people, Jesus took me by surprise by the things he started to do. I remember sitting there thinking, people are getting healed around me. We're seeing demons go out of people. It felt like the book of Acts. Imagine that. And at the end of it, time seems to go by so fast in God's presence. It was a night of victory for sure. But an hour and a half had passed. I remember finally I looked around I was so tired. The room was empty, and my friend grabbed my hands, and he said, tonight was a night of the victory of the Lord. We're giving him praise right now because our response to his blessing is praise. See, if we don't turn to worship right away, we'll turn to our egos. We'll turn to the next thing that we feel like we need to take care of. We'll turn to stuff that matters to us. But he said, right now, we're going to stand here 
and we're going to worship the Lord. And I've learned, friends, that if I have a sin problem in my life, I probably have a worship problem. And I think some of us need to learn the blessing of worshiping in the battle against sin and against the devil. And I am certain of this church, wherever God is calling Crestmont Alliance Church, there's going to be some stuff that he calls us to that we are just going to worship through. Areas of vision that we're just going to worship to the next thing that God has for us. I really believe I already see this growing in our congregation. We were packed out that back room last Sunday night. I'm so glad so many of you came in prayer. And we spent the balance of the evening just in worshiping the Lord because we're learning that the point isn't even the blessings that Jesus gives. The point is Jesus. And when we worship him, guess what? His goodwill is already directed to us. We're not praying to convince him to be good to us. His heart, look at the cross. If he gave you Jesus, he's going to give you everything else. That's his heart toward us. And we're finding that just as we worship the name of the Lord, don't even ask him, he often does the stuff that's on our hearts anyway. Can you stand to your feet? This is why, church, the psalmist says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name, who forgives your sins, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things. I think just at the end of our service today, the most appropriate thing we can do before Tim comes and closes us out, the most appropriate thing we can do is to act like Jesus is actually in the room, which he is, and let's give him the praise that he's worthy of. Come on, church. Let's lift it up to him. We praise you, Lord. You've done it for us. You healed us, Lord. We had nowhere else to turn, but we could turn to you. You've saved us again and again and again. Provided for us. Come on, work.